This morning, I want us to begin our sermon at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And I would invite you to go ahead and turn there with me to Revelation chapter 12. I have avoided preaching out of Revelation the last few weeks because my brother Terry Bradford has been teaching an exceptional class on this book uh, in, on Wednesday nights over here in the wing. And so I've stayed away, but I just couldn't resist preaching on this text on this particular day. And if you have kept up with your Bible reading, you've been reading out of Revelation. And by the way, if you've kept up, you have one more week to go and you will be finished. You will have completed reading the Bible through in a year. And a couple of you, more than a couple, have said, you know what, I am so thankful for this challenge. I've never read the Bible through in a year before and this year marks the first year. And if you're one of those people then you can give yourself a little pat on the back. I give you permission because that, you know, that, that's something. That's a great achievement. If you committed to reading the Bible through in a year and you have fallen behind, I want you to take your hand and smack yourself upside the head. I'm just kidding, of course. If you have fallen behind, keep reading. Don't stop, even if it takes you into 2020, and be thankful that you may have read more Bible in 2019, even, even if it wasn't the whole book, you may have read more Bible in 2019 than you've ever read before. And uh, that's, that's significant. That is something to be thankful for. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. And even by Revelation standards, our passage is bizarre. For those of you who have been in the class on Wednesday nights, I haven't been in there. I've been teaching another class. I wish that I could have been in there, and I think I'm going to get Terry to teach this again, or I think we should get him to teach it again, so I can be in there and listen to him talk about Revelation. If you've been in there, you know better than, than the rest of us how strange, what an odd and unique piece of writing this is in Revelation, and you know that there is a lot of symbolism in this book to sort through. But even by Revelation standards, our passage is quite bizarre, it's a true story, but it's not told in a straightforward narrative style. It is told with fantastical imagery. And so I figured I better throw that out before we dive in so that you know we are entering a strange world when we begin reading in Revelation chapter 12. Start with me in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. There are three figures that we need to notice in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 12. The first one is the woman, and she is introduced to us in verse 1. We see here that she is clothed with the sun, what does that mean? It's probably a sign of the light of truth that she possesses. And we see also that the moon is under her feet. What does that mean? Well, most people in this day and age, and I'm drawing from some of Terry's material here, operated by a lunar calendar. And so the fact that the moon is in the picture here probably is a reference to time and the fullness of time. This woman, uh, this is happening to this woman at just the right time. And we find that she has 12 stars in her crown. And what does that mean? It means or it represents the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel named 
after the twelve sons of the patriarch Jacob. Who is she? Well, she's Israel. She is the embodiment, the personification of God's historic people in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel. And then in verse 2, we are introduced to the second figure I want us to notice. And it is the child. We learn in verse 2 that this woman who represents the nation of Israel is expecting a child. And actually, she is in the process of giving birth. She's in labor. And then in verses 3 and 4, we find out about the third and final figure that we really need to notice in this passage. Read with me there in verses 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This dragon. We've got the woman, the child, and then the dragon. And, you know, any dragon is fearsome. When we conjure up an image of a dragon in our minds, it's a scary image. But this one, this one takes it up a notch. It's called a great red dragon. And it's seven-headed. And it has ten horns. And we get this, this uh, indication that it's gigantic. That it's huge because as it is crouched in heaven, a flick of its tail dislodges a third of the stars and sends them hurtling to earth. Any dragon is a scary sight, but this one, this one is incredibly terrifying. And we later learn in verse 9 that the dragon in this passage represents the devil, Satan. He is pictured here as a dragon. And you probably would agree that that's a pretty good image for our adversary, God's enemy, the devil. Would you not agree that that's a pretty good image? A fearsome, terrifying, dangerous dragon. And this old dragon still rears his ugly head in our lives today. As you well know, he is still very powerful. He wields a lot of influence in our world. He can wreak havoc in your life, in the life of your family, in your personal life. He is at work today. He is dangerous. In fact, we as people who are schooled better in the New Testament than the old, who are schooled probably better in the Gospels and the Epistles than we are in the book of Revelation, we know Him by a different creature. We know Him as the lion, the great lion, who prowls about the earth looking for someone to devour. He's alive and He's well and He's powerful. And we know that He is after us every moment of every day. The great dragon remains at work. And when the dragon arrives on the scene in Revelation chapter 12, we get this terrifying image in the second part of verse 4. Check this out. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The dragon waits to devour the child as soon as the woman gives birth. This is a, a grotesque, a disturbing image, and it's completely lopsided, this matchup here. No helpless infant, as we read 
you know, we think to ourselves, no helpless infant stands a chance against a giant, fearsome dragon. This matchup is completely lopsided, and we also ask ourselves, what child is this? What child is this? Now, you probably already know. But to fully answer this question, I think it's important that we go, we've started at the end of the Bible, I think it's important that we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And we consider the entire story of the Scriptures. What do you think are the greatest stories of all time? Or maybe I should say it this way, what do you think are like the most epic stories of our generation, of our time? I've thought of some stories that I think are pretty amazing, pretty popular. I think the story of Frozen is a wonderful, epic story. After I saw the second Frozen, I thought, you know, the second Frozen matched with the first is an epic story. And I know what you're thinking. Joseph, no self-respecting grown man would announce before 400 people that he's a fan of the Frozen movies. You need to just let it go, dude. Some of you got that. And it's not really a great joke <laughs> to begin with. But I bet those of you who have girls in your home, those are the ones who probably laughed. You got it. And maybe you agree with me that the story of Frozen, this is a pretty good story, pretty great story, an epic story. What about the story of Harry Potter, those books turned movies that captivated an entire generation of children uh, in our country. These, these fantasy stories about this boy named Harry Potter stretched over many years. You know, the first chapter of the first Harry Potter book is called The Boy Who Lived. And that phrase defines the entire arc of those stories. That's an epic story. A movie came out over the weekend that wraps up a 40-plus year epic saga called Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And maybe some of you went to see it. Maybe some of you remember going to the theater way back in 1977 to see the very first Star Wars film. And in 2019, that grand story uh, has been wrapped up, big bow tied on it. It's divided a lot of people. Some people think it was great. Some people think it was no good. But an epic story nonetheless. Let me tell you something. These stories are only great insofar as they borrow from the greatest story ever told. All these stories and more that we can think of, the most epic stories of our culture, they all got their best ideas from the story contained in this book. The story of the Savior, which includes the ultimate, most epic battle between the forces of good and evil. Every epic story was God's story first. And as we go back to the beginning of this story, I want to invite you to turn all the way back. You're in Revelation. Go all the way back to Genesis. As we consider the beginning of this story very briefly, we get an age of innocence in humanity and connection between the very first humans and their maker. And it's all too brief. It comes crashing down. It's followed by a much longer season or age of disconnection between humans and their maker, their creator God. And death 
and all sorts of punishment brought on by rebellion. Adam and Eve turned their backs on their maker and they decided to choose independence over dependence on God. They decided to listen to their own hearts instead of the voice of the one who crafted them. And this was produced by none other than the one we just read about in Revelation, Satan. Here in the form of a slithering, sly serpent. Now, we don't want to let Adam and Eve off the hook because they took the bait and they were the ones who fell and, and they deserve the blame that cast all of humanity into this endless cycle of sin and death. But it was Satan who slithered his way into the garden and whispered in their ears and caused this downfall to begin with that God punishes humanity and all of creation and the serpent and Satan But as God is spelling out the consequences for man, woman, and I want us to notice particularly Satan, there is a glimmer of hope. Even as God doles out punishment for this great fall of mankind, for this great rebellion, He is speaking to the evil one, to Satan, the serpent, and He says, chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him. His heel. What God says here, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as He is telling the serpent or Satan what the consequences of His actions would be, He says, a child is coming. And this child or this offspring of the first man and woman will face you, will face Satan in a head-to-head matchup. Satan, you will bruise him, but he will mortally wound you. He will give to you a death blow. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see this prophecy. We see God already saying, a child is coming. The offspring of this first man and woman, the eventual eventual offspring will bring reversal to the horrors of sin that have been unleashed on the world. What child is this? Well, his identity is fleshed out even further in the book of Isaiah. So go with me from Genesis to that book of prophecy, Isaiah, a little bit later in your Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah gets a lot of attention by the New Testament writers as they are connecting the prophecies of old with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 gets a lot of attention by them, and it gets a lot of attention this time of year. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. What child is this? Let's read what Isaiah had to say hundreds of years before the arrival of our Lord. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We learn here about this forthcoming child. We learn about His ultimate authority 
His peaceful reign, His complete fairness, His everlasting sovereignty. What child is this? Well, I think I've already given it away as we've led up to this moment. When we finally arrive in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we learn that this long-awaited child and Jesus, born of Mary the Virgin in Bethlehem, well, they are one in the same. Jesus is the Christ child. And it is this child that Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, in its strange, mysterious way, is telling us about. It is this child that this story in Revelation 12 is all about. This child brought forth from Israel. Israel is the one, in a sense, producing or birthing this child, the Christ child, into the world. This child who Satan is so eager and desperate to destroy. But our question, and we left off here, we left this on a cliffhanger, does the evil one succeed? As you remember, his mouth is open to devour the child as soon as he is born. Because he knows what God said back in Genesis 3. He remembers what God said to him when he was in the form of a serpent. You will, will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. He will give to you the death blow that you deserve. He remembers and he's eager to put a stop to it before it even starts. He wants to devour this child that will bring such hope to the world. Does he succeed? Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The answer, does he succeed? Absolutely not. Not even close. He fails to put a stop to the Christ. And this leads, as we continue to read in chapter 12, and we're not going to have time to dig into all of the fascinating verses in chapter 12, but as you continue to read, you learn that this leads to the devil's defeat. And this leads to Satan being stripped of his power and cast down to earth. I mean, this is kind of the final straw for Satan. This is the moment when he, we know that he will, when the end of time comes, be ultimately defeated. The child is victorious. Just as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, foretold. Now that's a story right there. That is an epic tale. From start to finish an epic story, the greatest story of all time, and at the center of it all, a child. And unlike the stories from earlier that, that we briefly mentioned, I want to say three things about this story. Number one, it's true. It's true. Every bit of it is true. It happened. All of it. The stories I mentioned earlier come from the minds of men. This story from the mind of God. The stories earlier Fiction, this one, truth. Up and down, all, all of it is true. It happened. Number two, it benefits you. Those stories from earlier entertain us, but this story benefits us. It blesses us. The message of this story, how this story changes and transforms us, it communicates us that we don't have to be mastered by evil and sin because of this child that changed the world. The message of this story is your future isn't in the hands of the dragon, the evil one, Satan. 
This story blesses you. It transforms your lives in unimaginably good ways. And number three, you can participate in this story. Those other stories you can read about and you can watch, but this story, you get to play a vital supporting role in this story. You get to be a part of it as you share the good news of the Christ with everyone around you. You can be a part of this story. It's true. It benefits you. You can participate in it. This truly is the greatest story of all time. You know, every year, the world gathers around the manger. This time of year, minds go back to that little town of Bethlehem, and our minds are filled with images of shepherds and wise men and a lowly couple who traveled because of a mandate by the emperor to the town of Joseph the father's birth to be counted in the census. And when they got there, there was no place for them to stay, and so they made an abode, a temporary dwelling in the place where the, the animals were kept. And in that place, Mary, who was soon to give birth, the time came for her to bring a child into the world and he was wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid in a manger. And our minds go back to that tender scene, and we have images of Jesus as an infant, meek and mild, and we sing songs about this. But we, people of faith, people of devotion to our God, we need to understand that this is more than just a gentle, tender scene. When we gather around the manger, when our minds go back to the manger, we need to remember exactly who it is who's lying in that feeding trough. We need to understand the full meaning and significance of this event, the arrival of this child into the world. Who exactly is this? What child is this? This is a dragon slayer. This is a dragon slayer. In his death and resurrection and exaltation, this gospel story that is told in just a few short words in verse 5 when we read that the child was caught up with God and to his throne, escaping certain death, the snatches of the dragon's mouth. It was his death and resurrection and exaltation that this child who grew into the man that we know doomed the devil to defeat the baby in that manger can defeat a dragon. He did defeat the dragon. And he can kill the dragon in our lives too. Check out verse 10 of Revelation chapter 12. Just the first part. Where John the Revelator says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come upon the believers in Christ, He has the power to kill the dragon in our lives too. And we also learn from Revelation 12 that it is His blood that protects us from Him. Listen, Satan only has as much power as we give him. We battle against a defeated foe. 
Jesus won the ultimate victory against Satan at the cross and at the empty tomb and when he ascended into heaven. Satan has been defeated. Yes, as I said earlier, he still wields a lot of influence and power in our world today. But the clock is ticking on Satan. His time is running out. In fact, Revelation chapter 12 says, he knows his time is short. And he is eager to drag as many of us down into the pits of hell with him as he can snatch. Don't let him. Your Lord is a dragon slayer. He can slay the dragon in your lives. He is the one who is victorious, not the dragon. He only has as much power as you allow him to have. So my question is, are you tapping into the power of your Lord? That power that even as an infant, I mean, that's how it's visualized for us in, in Revelation chapter 12, that he's able to defeat a dragon. That's your Lord. And the spirit of your Lord is living within you. And the presence of your Lord goes alongside you throughout your life. He has the power to defeat the dragon in your life. Do you need the hope this morning that the manger, and let's move beyond the manger, that the cross, that the empty tomb, that the vision of the ascended Lord can bring? Listen, there's only one who can slay the dragon in your life. Maybe this morning you think the dragon, that dragon is more fearsome than the one that I read about in Revelation 12. That dragon has a stranglehold on my life, on my mind, on my heart, on my actions. I can't seem to turn loose of the dragon. Jesus is the dragon slayer. Allow him to defeat the dragon for you. He's the only one that can do it. You can't. By your own ability and power, you are powerless against the great red dragon, but you serve one who can defeat the dragon who already has. You can come before him today and you can ask for prayers of this body so that the dragon, so that Jesus can defeat the dragon in your life. Or if you need to come to Jesus for the first time, confess his beautiful name and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we sing this song for you. Or we have a couple elders who will be in the library after our assembly is over, and you can go back there and talk with them, pray with them. If there needs to be a change in your life, spiritually speaking, don't walk out those doors without addressing it. Why don't you do that right now as we stand and sing?